If you uh, would, please remain standing and let's read today's scripture text. We are in Psalm 73 today, so we'll have that on the screen for you or you can follow along in your Bible. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Emmett. Well, good morning, church. Hope you're doing well. A few years back, Bible Gateway, one of the main online Bible platforms in the world, was, was posed the question, was asked the question, what is the most popular book of the Bible? Like, what is the book of the Bible that people read the most and so they and they looked at their data, and it was pretty clear, by far, the number one most read book of the Bible is the book of Psalms. And why? Like, why Psalms? Well, I guess one reason it's the longest book in the Bible. But you're not, I don't see y'all reading Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah quite the same, right? So it goes, it goes beyond that. Because though this is divine scripture, the book of Psalms also feels the most uniquely human, right? It, it really captures the beauty and the beast of the human experience, unlike any other book of the Bible. 
And you even get a, a sense of that when, when you study the book of Psalms as a whole. There's 150 Psalms, and, and when scholars look at the Psalms, they tend to break it up into different categories. And so you have Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of praise. You have what are called the Messianic Psalms, the Psalms that point to the Messiah. You have wisdom Psalms. But the largest category, the largest subcategory within the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. Makes up about a third of the book of Psalms. About a third of the 150 Psalms are categorized as either individual or communal Psalms of lament, Psalms of heartache. As one commentator put it, the Psalms of lament are not just random screams in the night. They are the real expressions of pain, of real people who exercise real faith in the living God. So Psalms is this reminder that it's okay to cry out to God, that it's okay to be honest, that it's okay to, to lay your heart bare before the Lord. And as a matter of fact, it gives you examples of how to do it. So not only is it the acknowledgement that it's okay, but it's like, and here's how it can be done. Here's what it looks like to cry out to God. Because as followers of Christ, we want a deep and vibrant faith. But in order to have a deep and vibrant faith, it must be honest and authentic. You can't have deep and vibrant without honest and authentic. And that means bringing our heartache before the Lord, a faith where we are real about our issues. And the journey of life, even for the Christian, like it's one of ups and downs, right? It's one of joy and sorrow. It's one of hope and heartache, and no book captures that better than the Psalms. And so as we look at Psalm 73, our Psalm this morning, it, it is a great example of this journey of faith of the journey of faith. Because in it, the psalmist is going to chronicle some of his wrestling with God. He's going to reflect upon his frustrations and, and why he was crying out, why he was frustrated with God. But then he's also going to talk about how his spirit was renewed and how his faith was restored to be even stronger than ever before. And so as we walk through the psalm, it really breaks down into two categories or two parts the first half and the second half. And the first half, we're going to look at the struggle. What is the struggle of the psalmist? And then the back half is the solution. How does he respond to his struggle? And so if you start in verse 1, it's really his foundational belief, right? It's his core value. It's his governing truth. It's the bedrock of what he believes. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So the psalmist says, here's the deal. I know God is for me. Maybe in, in our terms, modern terms, I know God has my back. I know I'm, I'm one of his. I mean, I'm, I'm chosen. I'm, I'm of the people of Israel. I know that all who seek him, who are pure in heart, they belong to him. I believe this, and it's the foundation for everything. And yet, because he believes this, it's going to lead him to struggle with some stuff. Because that's his foundational belief, because he knows that God is for him, he's going to look at his life and look at the world around him and say, but something is off. Like, I don't get it. And he's going to struggle with it. And, and, and the struggle, he reflects upon it starting in verse 2. He says, but as for me, 
My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's got a problem. What's his problem? Like, what's, what's the core issue that's driving him to this place of frustration? He's having a hard time understanding how God can bless those who have no fear of him while seeming to withhold blessing those who do, most notably himself. Saying, why are you blessing them in ways that you don't bless me? And so in verse 3 says, for I'm envious, I'm envious of the arrogant. When I see their prosperity, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he says, the wicked are prospering and I'm drowning. You are not judging the godless God. You are raining down blessing upon them. Their bank accounts are full. Their hospital bills are low. They're experiencing all these victories in life. Their heartache seems to be non-existent. All the while, I'm hurting. And here's the deal. In case you didn't know this, God, those people you're blessing, they don't even care about you. They don't like you, God. He goes on in, in, in verse 9, if you go down a little bit, he says, as a matter of fact, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Verse 11, he says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And so the psalmist says that he's just like, he's just flabbergasted. Like, how can this be? And the thing is, is it's not just a problem for him intellectually. He's not just like, you know, Sherlock Holmes, how am I going to figure this out? It's not just an intellectual issue. Like, it's cratering his faith. It's destroying his trust in God. So much so that he wonders if it's all in vain. Like, is there any point to this? If his obedience and devotion have been a waste of time, look at verse 13. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So this is raw and honest, right? This is raw and honest, and this is the book of beauty of the Psalms. He says, what's the point of my devotion if it only leads to disappointment? What's the point of my devotion if it only leads to disappointment? What's the point of my obedience if it doesn't lead to personal blessing? What's the point of my obedience if it doesn't, if I don't receive material blessing from it? I want you to stop there for a moment. Because those are not questions like we are proud of, right? They're, they're probably not questions that we'd want to come up on stage on Sunday and say, well, this is really what's going on in my heart. What's the point of devotion if it just leads to disappointment? What's the point of obedience if it doesn't result in material blessing? Like, that's not things we're proud of, but they're things that I would imagine all of us at some point have wrestled with. Maybe just our heart has 
kind of wandered that direction. We may have never said it verbally, but we felt it in our bones. We felt it in our soul. And those questions arise because on the one hand, you might be struggling. You might be experiencing something hard. And at the same time, you look around and you see these people who have no fear of God and they're maybe excelling in the place you're longing to excel. Or they're reaping blessing in an area you long to experience blessing. And it can be totally disorienting to, to our faith. Because you're saying, what in the world? Yeah, like, I thought you were for me. I thought we were on the same team. I thought you were on my, on my side. And how do we respond to that? My, my first ministry job, as I've told you before, was I was a singles pastor. And, and I sat with countless singles, oftentimes with, with tears coming down their face, just at their wit's end. And they're saying, I want to be married. And marriage is a good thing. And I have tried to do it God's way, waiting for God's best. And I'm still single. I'm still in the same place. And just heartbroken over it, not understanding. Like, why is God not honoring my, my wish? And, and, and at times, some of them, they, they, they punted on God's design. So I'm not walking in it anymore because it hasn't gotten me anywhere, or at least where I want to go. Maybe you want kids, but it, it, it hasn't happened for you for whatever reason, and it's a source of tremendous heartache, tremendous pain. And you're like, I'm just longing what the book of Genesis commands. And you see other parents or other families, and, and they have kids, and they have no business maybe being parents. And yet God seems to bless them, and their quiver is full. Maybe you do things right at work. You have integrity. You work hard. You're honest. You treat people right. And then when the time for the promotion comes, it goes to this other person who's not as qualified and who has no fear of God. God, are you not honoring the work of my hands? I'm trying to honor you. You memorize scripture every day about God's strength. But you continually find yourself sick and with failing health. All the while, those with no regard for God, they're living their best lives now. You parented your kids in the fear of the Lord. The couple down the street raised theirs in the highest form of secularism, but somehow their kid found Jesus and yours has departed. You say, what, what gives? I don't get it, God. I'm doing things by the book here, and my return is not what I envisioned. My reward is not what I expected. And I wonder how many of us have been there at some point. I'm just asking, what gives? And this is exactly how the psalmist is feeling. This is his struggle. What gives, God? And as we reflect on his struggle, a struggle that is not unique to him, I want to take a few minutes and just look at some of his mistakes, common mistakes. But some of the mistakes that are leading him to where he's at. 
And there was a famous preacher in the 20th century in, in Britain named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he would talk about the ladder of faith, going up and down the ladder of faith. And so what we see in the first half of Psalm 73 is the psalmist going down the ladder of faith. He's heading down. Well, what are the steps that are taking him there? What are the mistakes that's leading him down this ladder? Well, let's look at the first one. I'm going to give you two, but here's the first one. His first problem is that he defines God through the lens of his problem. So his first issue is that he defines his understanding of God from the basis or from the lens of his current problem, of his current situation. He says, I am not flourishing and others are. I am just surviving, others are thriving. And that truth becomes his starting point for understanding who God is. That's the lens by which he looks through God is his current issue, his current problem, his current struggle. But here's the deal. If your core understanding of God is rooted in your current situation, then your view of God is ever-changing and often distorted. Because your situation is changing, but God is unchanging. He is forever the same. And by starting with your problem, you may come to wrong conclusions about God. Things like he doesn't care about you, that he doesn't hear you, that he's not being faithful to you, or maybe that he doesn't even exist at all. But when our current problem becomes the lens by which we see and understand God, we become like a racehorse, right? You ever gone to the, the, the horse track? What do they run with? Blinders. And all they can see is what's in front of them. They can't, they, they can't see everything. They can't understand everything. All they know is what they see, and all they can see is right there. But God knows all. He's not like a racehorse. He's a sovereign king. Our view is limited. Our experience is limited. Our knowledge is limited. And what we understand in part, God knows in whole. God is the creator. God is the source of life. God is the king. God is wise. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He is perfect. He is faithful. He is full of mercy and full of grace. And God is the one who gets to define who he is. God and God alone. He is the one who gets to define his character. He tells us. His authority, God's word is more authority than our feelings. And so the first problem that the psalmist has is he's defining God He's understanding God through the lens of the struggle that he's in, which is this person is flourishing more than me, and that shouldn't happen. All right, so what's the second issue? What's the second step down the ladder? And this is a common step for us in our day. He's made prosperity his God. He's made prosperity his God. Or at the very least, made prosperity the, the greatest gift of God, right? the greatest blessing from God. And this mindset has led him to what? To envy and to doubt. That's what it's led him to. 
By making prosperity the greatest gift, it's led him to envy and to doubt, to envy those around him and to doubt God and to doubt his goodness. He has made the mistake of making material riches the height of the human experience. And because prosperity became his God, he is envious of others and confused by God. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. He says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. You see that? He says, I, his mindset is, I do good, I get good. I do bad, I get bad. This is not complicated, God, right? And for him, getting good is defined as material blessing. And so when that doesn't happen, it disorients his understanding of God and his faithfulness because it, 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 it doesn't make sense to him. And, and to be fair, let's be fair, right? Suffering is disorienting. It's hard. It's always unexpected. We're never totally prepared to suffer. And so it's, it's a bit of a shock to our system. And, and, and we expect intrinsically that those who do good should receive good, and those who do bad, should, who do evil, should receive the reward. And it makes sense to us because God is a God of justice, right? And so we expect that to happen, and we expect that to happen right now. Right now. Like right now, right now, right? And so it's normal for the Christian to experience times of confusion with God. Times of being disoriented, um, perplexed. You can go to the, the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians as he's writing the church in Corinth and all that Paul's been through. And we know the depth of Paul's faith, but all that he's been through, he writes the church in Corinth in verse 8. And he says, we, in chapter 4, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. He says, we're perplexed. Like we don't, I don't get all this. I don't understand all of this. Saying life with you sometimes, God, is perplexing. It's confusing. And it's not wrong to be perplexed. That's not a sin, right? That's not the sin of the psalmist. Lots of the psalms are filled with expressing perplexion. Don't Google that until we're done. I don't think that's a word. But... The Psalms are filled with people who feel perplexed about God. That takes a long time to say it that way. So I had to. But there's a lot of people who are perplexed, right? And so the problem for the psalmist is not that he's perplexed. It's that he's made prosperity his God. Okay? That's the sin. It's not that he's perplexed. God's ways are not ours. I mean, he's going to be confusing at times. What we know in part, he knows in whole. The issue is not being perplexed. The issue is making prosperity your God. Because when prosperity, whether that be physical, material, relational, 
When prosperity becomes our greatest priority, like the primary lens by which we understand God, that's sin. Now we're into sin because the idol, what is God, is actually his blessing or actually prosperity and not God. And so we've made an idol out of prosperity, right? And that will distort our walk with God, if not destroy our faith when hard things come, which they will. And so because the psalmist took these two steps down the ladder, you with me? Because he defined God through the lens of his problem, and because he made prosperity as God, he almost falls off the ladder. You see that? He almost falls off. In verse 2, it says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Like I almost completely bit it. Almost, right? But now, starting in verse 15, he's going to make his way back up. He took two steps down and he was about to fall. But now he's going to work his way back up the ladder of faith. And so let's look what he does in verse 15. It says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So the first thing he does is he refuses to give in. He says, I am struggling and I feel like this is all in vain, but I know that's a lie and I will not believe it. I will not believe it. I know that's not true. And I will not forsake the vows to the one true God. I will not betray the generation of your children. I will not teach things that are untrue about you and lead others astray. I won't do it. And so his first step back is he doesn't let his feelings override his faith. Feelings are often dictated by circumstances, right? And so he says, I'm not going to let the way I feel cancel my faith. We, we oftentimes make those one and the same. But he said, no. I'm going to keep the faith even though I feel like lost at sea. I feel far from you. I feel a deep struggle. And this is key, right? But this leads to an issue for him. What's the issue? He still has to make sense of God. He's, he can't just go, I'm, just, I'm not going to give up, and that's all I got. He's still going to wrestle with, then what's going on? And so in verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It says, I'm not going to punt on you, God, but golly gee, I want to understand more. And, and how do I do this? Like, where do I even start? Where do I go? How do I, how do I, where do I even begin to try to grasp what you are doing, God? And that brings us to the major moment, which is verse 17. It's the major pivot. Okay, He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. It says, until I went to the sanctuary of God. So the second step kind of back up the ladder is he returns to the place of worship. He returns to the place of worship. And this is, this is key. I'm not saying this as a pastor or a church or anything. This is, 
This is key. This is when things get hard, where do you go? Where do you go? Because that's going to dictate so much about your walk with God and the trajectory of your life. When struggles come, when fear avails, I'm going to mess up the lyrics, Brandon. (laughs) Where do you go? Where do you run? When things got hard, the psalmist didn't run away from God. You see that? When his faith in God was faltering, he ran to the presence of God in worship, at the house of God in the sanctuary, where the truths of God were renewed in his heart. That's what he did. I'll say that again. He, when, when, he was being, when his faith was faltering, he ran to the presence of God in worship, at the house of God in the sanctuary, where the truths of God were renewed in his heart. Where do we go when things get hard? Do we run to God or do we run away from him? Do we stiff arm him or do we fall at his feet and say, take me as I am? And that will dictate so much about our walk with God and about our life with him. The psalmist runs to the temple. He runs to God. He goes to worship. And as he returns to the house of God in worship, he is renewed in grace in the truth of God. Because in the house of the Lord, in the sanctuary of God, God reminds him about the truth of who he is, what he's done, that he is faithful, that he is the creator, that he will complete that which he began, that those who hope in him will not be disappointed. He reminds him of those core truths by which he lives by. You see, he's not just going to the sanctuary of God. He is going where God's truth is proclaimed and where God's faithfulness is on display. They remind him of who God is and what he's done. Y'all have heard me speak before about my time as a a foreign exchange student in college, and and I studied in France. And so I remember the first time I was in Paris, and you're kind of seeing the sights, you know, and you're you're going to see the Mona Lisa, or you're going to the the Arc de Triomphe, right? Or you're going to the Eiffel Tower. But for me, you get to go see the cathedrals because that's part part of the deal. And, of course, the most famous cathedral in Paris is Notre Dame. But the one that I came across that I'll never forget, that, that, that became my favorite, is a chapel called Saint-Chapelle. And it, it doesn't look quite as amazing as Notre Dame or as Notre Dame on the outside, but once you get in, it just blows you away because this is what it looks like when you go in the chapel. It was built in the 13th century by King Louis. It only took them six years so I feel pretty good about our church project. <laughs> I, told, I told our architects, can you do that like with a modern flair in an economical way in a short amount of time? <laughs> what do you think? You know, how hard is it? But it's completed in 1248. And, and, and the chapel, the stained glass only has five colors, blue, red, green, purple, and yellow. And each window depicts one of over a thousand scenes from the Bible. So it's the story of the Bible on display as the light enters in. And so you don't have to, people can read. They didn't have their Bibles. There wasn't a printing press. But you saw the story of God through the windows, right? And you were reminded of God's faithfulness with each 
beautiful piece of stained glass. And it was, a, it was a place where you were reminded and renewed in the truths of God. You see, when hard things come, it is not a reason to run away. It's all the more reason to return to worship, to be reminded of who God is. And so step one back up the ladder is he refuses to believe lies. His feelings will not trump his faith. And then truth two is he returns to the place of worship. And when he does that, he gets step three up the ladder, which is an eternal perspective. It recalibrates his perspective and gets his eyes off the immediate to the eternal. Look at verse 16 through 20. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He goes on in verse 27 and says this, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So when he goes into the sanctuary, God gives him a, a proper perspective of his situation and reminds him, you need to see the end in light of the beginning. You need to see the beginning where you're at in light of the end. You need to have some eternal eyes here. The evil will perish. They will lose in the end. So he says, you, you have to see this, the the current moment in light of eternity, or it's never going to make sense. It can't make sense because the world is harsh and unjust, right? And so it's like a, it's like a sporting event, if you will, where the home team maybe is getting beat and the crowd is booing and the players are bickering and they're frustrated. And then the coach calls a timeout and says, guys, why are you panicking? It's the first quarter. We're going to win. They don't decide who wins at halftime. That's not the score that shows up in the books. you got to play all four quarters. You're stuck in the first quarter. You have to see the moment in light of eternity, in light of the whole. Because in the end, those who trust in the Lord are victorious. And so in the house of the Lord, the psalmist recalibrates his perspective. And he remembers, I've got to get out of this little moment I'm in and make sure that I have an eternal, eternal eyes, that I'm rooted in the present with eyes to eternity. And that will allow me to navigate the moment that I'm in. When we get it, where we get our eyes up from what is in front of us to that which eternally awaits us. So he has this eternal perspective while being present in the moment. So the psalmist realizes he's lost sight of that. And that the time in the sanctuary woke him from the slumber. And when he realizes that, this is what he realizes. This is the final kind of step up. So this is where he gets to the top of the ladder in a way maybe he hasn't before. He, he realizes that his reward at the end of the day is God himself. The reward is actually God. It's his presence, it's the relationship, it's being with God. So think about it. when he went down the ladder, 
He defined God by his problem, pretty man-centered, right? My situation. And he took another step down because he made material blessing his God. I'm not experienced material blessing. God, you don't care about me. Where's my reward? And then he goes back up by God's grace by refusing to believe the lie, by returning to worship, by recalibrating his perspective. And that brings him to the realization that his reward at the end of the day is God. It's God himself. Look at verse 21 through 28. It says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those of you, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. You see the transformation? You see, early on, he, he was bitter because where's my reward? I thought we had a deal. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I'm obedient, you give me what I want. That was his mindset early on. Now he sees that his reward is and will always be God himself. That God is the reward. Not anything that God might give him. Not any material blessing. The reward is not the perks of God, it's his presence. Charles Spurgeon, when he, when he preached this sermon, he said this about this text. What have we in heaven but God? What's joy without God? What's glory without God? What's all the furniture and riches, all the delicacies, yes, of all the diadems of heaven without the God of heaven? If God should say to the saints, here's heaven, take it amongst you, but I will withdraw myself. How would they weep over heaven itself and make it a baka, a valley of tears indeed? Heaven is not heaven unless we enjoy God. Tis the presence of God which makes heaven. Glory is but our nearest being unto God. So he starts by defining God through his problem and by making God nothing more than material prosperity. But he finishes by allowing the truths of God to reorient his heart, to have an eternal perspective and to come to the realization that the greatest reward is God himself. It's God with us. And the reason we await the presence of God in heaven is because the Son of God came to earth. And that's what we get to celebrate right now as we take communion together. And so I want us to take a moment and get our hearts right as a church family before we partake in communion together. We practice what's called open community, open community, open communion and community, but open communion at Christ's community, which means if you have, are someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, 
then we want to invite you to participate in communion with us. And so I'm going to give you a few minutes right now to go before the Lord, confess your sin, to run the gamut of the Psalms, right? Thanksgiving, praise, asking for wisdom, confessing our sin, lamenting our shortcomings and the problems of this world. And then in a few minutes, I'll come up and we'll take the elements together. So take this time to go before the Lord.